Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bible today, will you turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, or the text is printed there on page 7 in your bulletin. I want to preach a baptism sermon. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he he was a leper. Now the Syrians in one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. And bless our hearing of it now, Father, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, why am I preaching on this text for... Tyler's baptism. I'm pretty obviously trying to draw some connection between what just happened to Tyler and what happened to this Syrian general almost 3,000 years ago, and that may seem like an awfully big stretch, but hang with me for a minute. We'll see if it's too weird what I'm trying to do here. I want to just quickly set the scene of what's going on, where we are in this story. You guys remember King Solomon, son of David? You might remember that his son Rehoboam turned out to be a very tough king. And he ended up splitting the kingdom. Ten tribes said to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, you're too hard, you're too harsh as a king. We're going off to set up up a separate kingdom. And that northern kingdom from the very beginning, cut off from Jerusalem and the temple and David's line of kings, they they immediately and pretty much throughout their entire existence, they they were just spiritually dead. And right now, in this particular moment in the story, they they are just... They're not mostly dead. They are just a spiritual corpse. We are in the time of what is called the Amride 
dynasty. You guys remember King Ahab? Like the wickedest of the wicked kings of Israel. Well, his father Omri started the Omride dynasty. And then there was wicked, wicked Ahab. And now his son Jehoram is on the throne of Israel. These kings are so bad, they're actually trying to be like the Canaanites before Israel even conquered the land. They, want, they, they actually desire that level of worshiping false gods and just gross immorality. And it's in this horrible time that Elijah and Elisha show up on the scene. And one of the reasons why so many of their miracles are bringing life out of death, actually even in some cases raising the dead, because that's what, that's what needs to happen in Israel. They're spiritually dead, and they need to be raised to life. Now, what's happened is because they're spiritually dead, this northern kingdom is also politically vulnerable. We're in a little bit of a lull here in this story, but there have been years of war. If you look at a map of Israel along the, uh, the east coast of the Mediterranean, up north, they're, they're, the, the Syrians, it's actually where Syria is today. Damascus is still where Damascus is today. And there's been a whole bunch of war for years with that northern neighbor, and it's gotten really personal because King Ben-Hadad in, uh, of, of Syria... He's the one who in battle killed Jehoram's father, Ahab. And then, we'll, as we, you heard, there have been these raiders coming into the land. I don't know if you guys can imagine living in a place where all of a sudden, one day, there might just come a bunch of bandits down your street, snatch up your kids and take off with them. And this is just kind of like normal. It was a very dark time. They're very vulnerable. But it is at this time of all times that Israel's God decides to do something incomprehensible. He chooses to do something that's just so hard to understand. And I want to start with this. You, I want us to watch God seek a Syrian. God seeks a Syrian. Now, there's no forewarning at all. We're just reading along the story of Israel, and all of a sudden, we're introduced by name to one of the bad guys. So this is not a story about Syrians. This is a story about Israelites. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the story, we're just introduced to this guy named Naaman out of nowhere. There's no preparation for this at all. And he's not just one of the bad guys. He's a really big fish up there in Syria, which makes him even more hateful. He is a great man in high favor. What we're really not prepared for is that the reason Naaman is such a big fish up in Syria is because God, Yahweh, Israel's God, has given this man victory. God has given victory to Syria through him. And if you're an Israelite, you're immediately saying, wait a minute, God has given this enemy victory? I mean, like in the raids, for example, in the raids of our country? And, and it's just, it's just it's, I mean, we're two verses in, and it's already just like incomprehensible. This would have been incomprehensible to the ancient pagan mind of the time. First of all, because this doesn't make much sense to us, but in that time, they would have absolutely understood God's deities are local. They're local. The, the, the Syrians have their God. The Philistines have their gods. The Israelites have their God. But gods are local, and they fight for the locals, right? Like Israel's God fights for Israel. The Philistines' gods fight for the Philistines, and the Syrians' gods fight for, for them. And so it would have completely jangled the, the, the ancient pagan mind. What is this deity in Israel doing reaching up into somebody else's territory and going after this Syrian and blessing this Syrian. That would have made no sense to the pagans of the time. And I don't think this makes much sense to the modern mind either. Because we're all, you know, in our time, all about justice and rights and, you know, looking out for, 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 for people that are oppressed. And, and this is a bad guy who's doing evil things, committing actually atrocious 
things, and you're saying that God is using him, and it just, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, we keep reading, and it gets a little bit better, because at least he's a leper. <laughs> you, you can kind of say, you know, so there, you miserable Syrian. He's a leper. Now, it is important to, to understand that this is almost certainly not what we today call leprosy. It's not the disease rotting, uh, the, the flesh rotting disease that eats away your, your body. Uh, this word for leprosy it covers a, a very wide range of disfiguring skin diseases, but there would have been a, a significant social stigma associated with these unclean, uh, you know, these diseases of the skin. And to Israel, under the law of Moses, skin diseases made you unclean. You were not fit to be in God's holy presence if you had any skin disease. And so they would have immediately understood that Naaman is, is an unclean thing. And that might have made them feel a little bit better. But then we go on, and we really just feel, as I said, how much he deserves, you know, whatever miseries befall him when we hear about these raids and, you know, snatching children off the streets of Israel. And then there's this other curveball, because in verse 2, we w- we'd like to just stay with the raids and just talk about how bad that is, but we're told that there was a little girl carried off from the land of Israel, and we just get all worked up about that, injustice, oppression, kidnapping. But there's something very, very strange in this little girl. She is clearly a victim of something awful. I mean, none of you children, God willing, will ever experience anything like this. But she turns out, here in the house of her captor, she turns out to be a child of really quite remarkable faith. She has listened in her childhood to the stories of Yahweh's prophet, named first Elijah and now Elisha, and how that prophet of Yahweh is bringing life in the midst of the death and uncleanness of her homeland. She's listened to those stories, and she's believed in God and believes in his prophet. And she shows here this just totally unexpected love toward her captor. How I wish that, you know, my Lord could, could meet the prophet back home. And you, you kind of wonder, does she have some sort of Stockholm syndrome here that she's, you know, favors her captor? And I don't think it's anything more complicated than she just has a child. She has a child's faith, and she just really wants her master to, to meet her God, to meet his prophet, to experience the power of Israel's God. She just wants him, you know, she believes in God. She wants this man to experience the, the power of her God, the true and living God. And you have to wonder as the story unfolds, is it possible that what that little girl wants for Naaman, that's what God wants too? Is God, is God actually like hunting this bad, unclean, ugly enemy of Israel? Is God, is God actually hunting in this story this bad guy to show him grace? And if, if that's what God is doing, that for whatever reason, God who's got, you know, lots of stuff going on in his own land, he's now going after this Syrian, he's hunting and seeking this Syrian, this wicked man. If he's doing that, why? Why is he doing that? We're going to have to just sort of sit with that question. What, what, why is God doing this? Why Naaman? <laughs> of all the things God could be doing. Well, watch now as the drama unfolds. God seeks a Syrian. And now I want you to watch how a general becomes a child, how a general becomes a child. So Naaman, from his wife, he hears about what this little girl has said. And, you know, he responds the way you would expect. He's probably had this skin disease for years and years. It's awful. He's really interested in finding a cure, and, well, you know, maybe this is a possibility. But he's aware, of course, of the political delicacies involved, right? I mean, you know, the Israelites are not friends of the Syrians. And so he runs this idea by his king, King Ben-Hadad, 
And Ben-Hadad, you know, things are fairly calm right now with Israel, and so he, he hopes that things will work out for his favored general. He clearly likes Naaman. Naaman's done a lot of good for the country. And so he agrees he's going to treat this medical situation as an affair of state. And you can see there he sends this commendation letter commending uh, Naaman to, to Jehoram down in Israel. And he sends this massive load of bargaining chips. I mean, this is just some stupid money here. It's like 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, all the latest in Syrian fashion. Like, I don't know how the camels even held up under all of this metal. But they go marching off towards Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And I, I really love this scene where Naaman presents himself to Jehoram. So you've got three mighty men represented in this room. You've got, you know, the king of Syria, the king of Israel, and the general of Syria. And I love this little scene here because it is a study in how clueless about reality human power brokers can be. So these guys are power brokers. They are players on the political scene. And not one of them, two kings and a general, not one of them represented here has got the slightest idea what's actually happening. I mean, what's Naaman, what's he thinking? Well, Naaman is just a guy who's trying to get a body to match his social status, right? Like, if you're going to be great, maybe you can look great too. He'd like to get rid of the skin disease, right? That's all, that's what he's, all he's interested in. It's that simple. And his king, Ben-Hadad, you know, it's not complicated. He just is trying to buy a Hebrew skin cure. Maybe they got, you know, good skin cures down in in Samaria, and so he, he's trying to do that without starting a war. He's not trying to provoke anybody. He's just trying to get some help for his general. That's all he sees. And you can understand Syrians don't know what's going on. They don't know God. I just think Jehoram is kind of the worst, though. Jehoram kind of irritates me in verse 7. He's one of these really whiny characters in the Bible, super hard to like, and he just, he just kind of comes unglued when he reads this letter. You know, he can't see past the politics, and he's obviously got ulcers from the politics of the situation. No, he's trying to pick a fight with me, Ben Haydad. At least he's humble enough to admit he's not a god, but it's, you know, you give him credit there, but it's just kind of shocking that this man, the king of Israel, apparently has no sense whatsoever that there's a real god he can turn to, right? Like, you're the king of Israel. You've got the whole story of Israel behind you, and he just like sits there and all he can see is the politics. That's all he can see. He doesn't see anything more going on than what Naaman and Ben-Hadad see. He doesn't even think about God, except that he's not God and can't do anything and he's afraid of the fight that's coming. And so he just sits there and kind of, you know, whines. Very awkward moment in this room. And word, unsurprisingly, you can imagine, you know, this Syrian comes into town. We hate the Syrians. This is big news. And word gets out on the street and it reaches Elisha, the prophet, at home. And so he sends word, you, you see it here, you know, come send Naaman to me, and Naaman comes, and we're told here for the first time that he comes with chariots. So I don't know how he came into the capital city of Samaria, but now that he's coming to Elisha's house, we're told he's there with horses and chariots. And this is a scene. I mean, this is just, you know, this is power. This is Syrian glory on display. Naaman is a great, great man. He comes marching up, you can imagine the horses and the, the rattle of the chariot wheels, and, and he has now this first encounter with Israel's God, represented here by his famous prophet, here we go, and it turns out to be a non-encounter. I mean, Elisha just obviously has no feel for the political delicacies here at all because Naaman is just left outside. And he just stands there waiting. He is left outside. This is obviously intentional. You may not come in. There's no access. There's no welcome. There's not even any acknowledgement. At some point after a long pause, this little servant kind of sticks his head out, you know, um, hi. 
This is what the prophet says. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. And then he kind of scuttles away, and that is the interview. Now imagine being Naaman. <laughs> imagine being Naaman at that moment. This is the first real prick in the balloon of this man's sense of greatness, and he is stung, and you would have been too. He is absolutely furious. He's furious, first of all, at being left out in the cold. He's come a very long way. He's gone to some trouble to, make, to, to meet this prophet. I mean, I'm honoring you by showing up. You could at least... I, you could at least stick your head out. I mean, he's just left out. There's no welcome. And what's crazy here, it's interesting, what Elisha has subtly done is he has actually exposed only one thing about Naaman, and that is you need to be cleansed. He doesn't acknowledge the money. He doesn't acknowledge the horses and chariots. He doesn't acknowledge the clothing. He doesn't acknowledge the title. He doesn't acknowledge anything. The only thing he even acknowledges exists about Naaman is you need to have a, a, a need to be cleansed. And so in a sense, he has just shamed Naaman quite publicly. All he... All he points out is what Naaman needs. There's no acknowledgement of what Naaman can offer. But it's actually worse. And I mean, you can imagine how offended Naaman was. Because I want you to think about this river he was just told to go wash in. The Jordan River, as you guys know from your Bible, is a marker of Israelite identity. It's a marker of Israelite identity. The Jordan River is Israel's border. It's what separates them from the other nations. It was the Jordan that God parted, even as he did the Red Sea 40 years earlier, God parted the Jordan River, and in a very real sense, at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan, as they were welcomed westward into Canaan, as, as God parted those waters and they came through the waters of the Jordan, I don't think it's too strong to say that they were baptized into God's kingdom. Because the Apostle Paul will later say that, that Israel was baptized into Moses through the Red Sea. And they are baptized again into the kingdom life in Israel through that Jordan River. This is an Israelite river that marks their identity in a very important way in their history. And Naaman knows that. And I, you just have to feel the, 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 the sting in his voice as he just scoffs at this. Basically saying, you know what, if this is some kind of weird duel of tribal water rights. I just want you to know I stand in the waters of Syria. I'm a Syrian. I'll take my bath in the far par in the Abana, thank you very much, you presumptuous prophet. Treating me like I should become an Israelite. He's just, he is so mad and he just stomps northward. Done. Well, his servants, you know, whew. Uh, master? And they start to kind of gently try to appeal to him, and it's differently, different English translations render the Hebrew differently here, but the idea is, is quite clear. Basically, their, their appeal is, Master, why not? <laughs> why not? We've come a long way. It's been a long journey. I mean, just a little, little detour, just to stop by the river. It's pretty low cost, potentially very high yield. Should we just give it a try? And eventually, Naaman calms down. He gets over his Syrian offense, and he concedes and you have to wonder what kind of a scene this is that ensues as they finally, probably not making much noise about it, they make their way finally, finally to the Jordan, and we're not told much at all. But we can be sure that Naaman got down off that high chariot and probably disrobed somewhat, and his disfigurement on his skin would have been there for all of his soldiers to see, and he wades out into the Jordan. You know, lots of people have speculated, what's his mindset going into those muddy waters of the Jordan? What's the state of this man's soul? Does he grumble? You know, stupid idea. <laughs> Can't wait till this is over and I can go home. 
Is he embarrassed? Is he kind of hopeful deep down? Is he nervous as each of the counts ticks by? Dip one, dip two, dip three. Well, we're going to let Naaman dip himself for a second. I want to ask you guys a question. And now we're finally going to get to where this is all going. I want to ask you guys a question while Naaman's dipping himself in the Jordan. Is there anything magical about that river, that water? Is it the case that just any old leper can drop in, take a dip in the Jordan, and be clean? This is not magic water. What makes this moment what it is is not just that this happens to be water. What makes this moment what it is is that Naaman is dipping himself in water with a word. This is water with a word. This flowing river is a promise from God, wash and be clean. That's the word of God about this water. And we're told that Naaman comes under that watery promise. He washes himself, he dips himself. Notice the language in verse 14, according to the word of the man of God. He comes under not just the waters of Jordan, but he comes under that watery promise and what he discovers as he, as he submits himself to that water with a word in it is he suddenly discovers on that seventh dip that the promise of God, the word of God in that water is actually true. We're told he is now clean. His, his skin is like that of a little boy. He went down into that water with a word with a body that was marked by death and uncleanness. And he emerges out of that water with a word. And he now has a body that is marked for new life. He is clean. And it's interesting that there is something even more, more, more momentous that happens in this submitting to the water with a word. You can see as we come to verse 15 that Naaman went into that water of the Jordan with a heart that was enslaved to some deep lies. Naaman believed, when he went into the Jordan, he believed the gospel of local gods. He believed that Israel had their God and the Syrians had their God and other nations had their gods. That's the gospel he believed. And you hoped in your gods and you prayed to your gods and you sacrificed to your gods. You want your gods to win over the other gods. That's what he believed. That's what had his heart. And when he down, comes down under God's Yahweh's watery promise, the, the watery promise of the God of Israel, he submits himself to that and he finds that it is true. He comes up out of that river into a completely stunning new world for a Syrian in which he now knows Yahweh alone is God. The local gods are a farce. The God of Israel, he is God. Not just for Israel, he is the God for all nations. He is the true and living God. And what that means is, if he is the true and living God and all the other gods are false, that means that all of his promises that he's ever made are true. If this promise is true, then all of his promises are true. And all these other gods and all their other promises are inventions by human beings. That's what he understands as he comes out of that water. And so what you see is he enters that water as a Syrian. But he comes, having been washed in that watery promise, the Apostle Paul's language is he has been washed in water with the word. He comes out of the river as an Israelite, knowing that Yahweh is the true and living God. We could say it another way, his heart has been circumcised. His heart has been circumcised. Now, I want to ask you, why is this story here? I mean, so what? We could have just had more Israelite history. Why is this story here? And here is my humble proposal for why this story is in Hebrew, the, the, the scriptures of Israel. 
Because I believe what God is doing in this text is he is calling Israel back to their baptism. He's calling his people back to their baptism. I told you, it's Paul's language, not mine. Israel was baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. They were baptized into Joshua and into the kingdom life in Canaan in the, in the Jordan River. These were baptisms of a people. And God in this story is calling Israel back to their baptism. And I want you to think about a few things that this text shows us about baptism and how much Israel needed to hear this at the time. It shows us that baptism is for sinners. Baptism is for sinners. It's for the unclean. It's for the impure. It's for the dead in their sins and trespasses. In fact, only sinners are eligible for baptism. And every sinner who is baptized may be cleansed. That's the promise of baptism. It is for sinners. God will cleanse those who need cleansing. He will, he will purify the sinners. And Israel needs to hear this right now because we, we know this even from Israel's history. God told Israel back when he was preaching to them through, in, in Deuteronomy through Moses, he said, I want you to know, I didn't choose you guys because you were better than other people. It wasn't that you were so moral and upright and had it all together. I, I didn't choose you because you were... Any, had anything more to commend you to me in your, in your morality and your righteousness, you weren't righteous. You were worshiping false gods in Egypt, often just like the Egyptians. I chose you because of, I, I chose to love you. I, I, I set my love upon you. It wasn't because you were clean. And I cleansed you and baptized you and brought you to myself. And now he's giving them a story, reaching all the way to this ugly, unclean Syrian. Because God wants to baptize all the nations. He wants to wash all the peoples of sinners in the world. And he will wash, he will cleanse idolatrous corpse-like Israel if they return to their baptism. The promise of their baptism is still true. Baptism is for sinners. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed. But also baptism isn't just for sinners. Notice that baptism is for children. Baptism is for children. It's not for those who can pay. God doesn't care about what Naaman can pay. He ignores Naaman's offer to pay. Baptism isn't for those who can pay. It isn't for those who can make some super impressive profession of faith. I mean, how much faith does Naaman have going into the water of baptism here? <laughs> you know, I, I, is this even a mustard seed? I mean, he's figured out enough that, you know, this is worth a try, but I mean, is he really, is he ready to stand up and like profess, you know, the Israelite faith? I mean, he's really, it's, it's pretty childlike faith that he comes to, the, to, the, to, to this water with. But what God is looking for in baptism is for those who encounter his watery promise to simply say, okay. Just say okay to what God has said. God said to Naaman, this is the promise of his baptism. Wash and you'll be clean. And he just said eventually, okay. And what does God say to you, Christian, in your baptism? The Apostle Paul says, you were washed, you were buried with Christ and raised in baptism, and you are clean. You're forgiven. You're mine. And what's he looking for? Okay. It's true. Okay. That's childlike faith. Baptism for children. One theologian, rather provocatively, has said all baptism is infant baptism. You bring nothing. You just receive, and you learn to believe as a little child. And Naaman shows us that. Baptisms for sinners, baptisms for children. Israel needs to hear it. And it also reminds us, and Israel surely needs to hear this, it reminds us that baptism is forever. God's promise never fails. God wants his people to come back to the Jordan. Remember, 
his calling, remember his love, remember his faithfulness. The water of that Jordan baptism still speaks to them. Baptism never fails. It never lies. God's promise cannot fail. Listen to Martin Luther on this. I absolutely love this metaphor. He says, how harmful an error it is to believe that the power of baptism is broken and the ship has foundered because we've sinned. No. That one solid and unsinkable ship remains. And it's never broken up into floating timbers. It carries all those who are brought to the harbor of salvation. It is the truth of God giving us its promise. Many rashly, indeed, leap overboard and perish in the waves. Like, we can choose not to believe God's promise, he says. Those, these are those who depart from the faith in the promise and plunge into sin. But the ship herself remains intact and holds her steady course. If one be able to return to the ship, it's not on any plank, but in the good ship herself that he's carried to life. Such a one is he who through faith returns to the sure promise of God that lasts forever. That baptism promise is forever. It never fails, and we keep calling people back to it no matter how much they might want to run. And Israel needs to hear that. God is still your God. Your baptism still speaks true. Come back to him. Repent of your sins and believe. The king has become, the general has become a child. The last thing I want to notice just very briefly as the general has finally become a child and been baptized is how baptism bears fruit. Two things follow in this one who's been cleansed by the washing of water with the word, this one who believes God's watery promise. Notice two things. He, he believes his baptism promise. He knows it's true. He says, okay. One is total allegiance. He goes back to Elisha, and now Elisha's glad to talk to him because he's clean. And he says to Elisha, I'm never going to worship or serve any other God as long as I live. I'm, in fact, I want, what I want you to do, Elisha won't accept his payment. He says, I just want you to give me enough Israelite earth that I can go build an altar to Israel's God, who's now my God, off in the foreign land of, of Syria. I know that's not necessarily the land that God has marked out as his own, but I want you to give me some Israelite earth because I want to go up there and build an altar and I'm going to worship God in that foreign place and I will worship him and no other all the days of my life. I am now all in, in allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what's beautiful is we know there's at least one little worshiper who will join him there. Because the flip side, beloved, of the baptism promise that we are his is the baptism allegiance He's ours. He's mine. It's what Israel sang when she came through her baptism in the Red Sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. This is my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That's the response of allegiance to the promise of baptism. And it's why the Apostle Paul can say to the church, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, sealed to you, promised to you in your baptism. I beseech you, I appeal to you by those mercies. Present your bodies now as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual worship, your reasonable worship. The baptized know this God has claimed me, and therefore to glorify him and enjoy him and serve him, that is my chief end. That is what I live for. Baptism bears fruit. And the other thing you notice, not just total allegiance follows from this baptism, but a tender conscience. Because Naaman has something pricking at his conscience, and this seems like such a tiny little thing. You're like, Naaman, you know, you should get over yourself. But I want you to notice the tenderness of his conscience. He says to Elisha, he says, I got one little problem. I just need to make sure this is okay. If I go back home, 
you know that I serve a worshiper of Ramon. I, I, I serve a king who worships Ramon. And he goes into his temple and he worships. And there are going to be times when in these ceremonies, I'm going to be standing next to him. He's going to be leaning on my arm. And when he bows himself to Ramon, it might seem as if I'm bowing to Ramon in the house of my master's God. And I want you to know, Elisha, my heart is fixed. I will serve Yahweh alone. But may Yahweh forgive me even the appearance that my heart is wandering as I do my duty to my earthly master. Will he forgive me? Will he be merciful to me for that appearance of departing from him. And all, you know, all I can say in response to that, I love Elisha's response. He says, go in peace. And all I would say in response to that is just, would God, beloved, that all of us who are baptized would be that sensitive to obeying our Lord's commands down to the smallest detail because he truly is our Savior and our King. And so that's my conclusion. That's what I want to say to you guys today. I don't know where you're, kind of all of you are at in your, in your life you know, with, with God, but wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, I want to call you today to remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Rest in that unsinkable ship. It'll never fail you. God's promise cannot fail. And then sail forth to the glory of this God who has said to you, and he cannot lie, he is your God, your strength, your song, your salvation. And make it so, our Father. Cause us to be rooted and grounded in your word such that we bear much fruit for you to the honor of your great and mighty name. And may all the nations come to the obedience of faith. In Jesus we pray. Amen.